Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a quick pitch for our Writing for Impact and Influence online professional development course, which I'll be teaching starting on the 6th of June. The basic idea behind the course is that modern technology has given us innumerable outlets for written content, whether those are press releases, social media campaigns, book reviews, memoranda, and so on. And scientists who are able to fill those outlets with good writing will have the biggest positive impact on policy, public opinion, and on their own careers. So please do sign up. We did this last year and it was a lot of fun. Uh, the sessions are conducted live with a lot of participation, but you can also listen in after the fact because we will record them. Uh, the link for it is io.aibs.org forward slash writing, uh, but you can also find that in the show notes. And in today's show, I'm joined by Will Arledge, who's a PhD student at the University of Oxford, and E.J. Milner Gulland, who's the Tassel Leventis Professor of Biodiversity, also at Oxford. They joined me to talk about the use of mitigation hierarchies in conservation. They'll explain the specifics, but the approach is all about finding ways to address the fact that biodiversity conservation is regulated through a patchwork of rules across an immense number of jurisdictions and governmental entities. And, you know, of course, as we've heard before, biodiversity itself doesn't work that way at all. So let's let them explain. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Okay, before we get into your article's recommendations and ideas specifically, I was hoping you could give us a broad overview of the biodiversity conservation international landscape. You know, what sort of entities are doing the rulemaking? What sort of entities are doing the enforcement? And, you know, sort of where do the gaps appear? Okay, I can, uh, I'll um, have a crack at it first and then EJ can uh, chime in. But um, currently, uh, you know, there's a, a wide sort of patchwork of uh, international goals and targets that uh, seek to conserve and protect um, biodiversity around the globe. Um, and at the global level, there are um, uh, conventions such as the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, and they have uh, the biodiversity or the Aichi biodiversity targets. Um, these have been followed up by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And in these uh, sort of broad-scale international um, conventions then filter down to national-level plans, <coughs> often called uh, National Biodiversity Strategy and Action Plans, or NBSAPs. And these can then filter down within uh, nation-states to local interventions that can be implemented with uh, on-the-ground conservation. Um, yeah, and kind of... Other than the kind of institutional stuff that uh, Will has nicely outlined, uh, I guess in terms of the mood of conservation, you know, it's a funny mixture at the moment between um, excitement and hope and despair. And um, on the excitement and hope side, you know, we're coming up to 2020, which is when all these biodiversity uh, targets are going to be renegotiated. So people are thinking about you know, what do we want for our planet in the next few decades? Um, and thinking about how can governments and NGOs and civil society work together to improve the state of our planet and make it sustainable. And then on the other side, there's this uh, great sense of crisis and unease about the fact that we're not going to make the targets that were set for us. It's quite clear that we're going to fail almost or pretty much all of them. And... Um, that, that is going along with continued destruction of biodiversity with the occasional bright spot. 
um, where things are going better. And so we're, we're sitting at a point at which we're looking towards the future, but looking kind of rather nervously back at the past. And what is the reason why many of these targets are going to be missed? You know, is it a result of the patchwork of enforcement mechanisms or are there other things at play as well? I think uh, a lot of it is um, a result of sort of the complexity of the patchwork of goals and targets. Um, it can sort of result in gaps and weaknesses of uh, conservation effort being difficult to identify or articulate. And uh, a good example at the sort of global level would be the um, Terrestrial Protected Area Network or even the Global Protected Area Network um, around the world, um, which now covers around 15% of all the terrestrial surfaces of the planet and around 5% of the global ocean. Um, but many of these protected areas um, are being found to occur in sort of residual areas, you could argue, avoiding uh, locations of high value um, for natural resource extraction. And that's sort of resulting in a significant shortfall in the protection of nature across eco-regions and important sites for biodiversity. Um, so you, what you're finding there is um, we might achieve these targets um, under the United Nations uh, SDGs or the Archie targets, but we might not actually get the outcome we're um, really hoping for. I guess on the other side of that is um, a basic lack of political will across the world and a lack of civil society getting behind conservation as an issue. And that's really, really well illustrated um, in the UK at the moment. We, we, had, um, we had Blue Planet, which uh, starring David Attenborough, in which the issues of ocean plastic were raised. Um, that's something that conservation NGOs have been kind of digging away at for years. And um, a kind of happy confluence of David Attenborough's programme plus uh, Brexit, plus, you know, the UK government wanting to highlight the environment as something that they're really serious about has led to massive, rapid policy shifts on plastics and the ocean. So that's the kind of thing that's needed is, is this kind of change in mindset that can happen very quickly after quite a lot of conservation pushing. And so, so you've got this situation in which, you know, you're able to set the, taking the example of the protected areas, you're able to set a target for protected area and you're able to achieve, you know, it's not a, it's not a modest result of, of protecting, you know, 15% of the terrestrial realm. But it might not be in the right place because you lack the political will, um, you know, to make the hard decision of placing that protected area, a place that might also be suitable for an oil field. Yes, I think you're also sort of uh, encountering um, an issue in that you're, there's, there's not a lot of uh, information sharing or perhaps the, um, the way that humans are impacting um, biodiversity and also trying to conserve biodiversity at the same time is not translating cohesively enough between sectors and also between scales. Um, and that's, again, an artifact of having this um, large patchwork of, um, of, of goals and targets um, spread across scales and, and, and sectors. This reminds me a little bit of a, of a group project in which you split up, you know, you split up the tasks to a separate group of people. Everyone goes home and does uh, his or her bit on their own and then uh, comes back together and none of it really fits well together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's exactly right. So then I, I guess pivoting a little bit to the more optimistic side or the um, getting this task done and, and improving the situation side, how would you propose to do that? You know, what would be a better approach than, you know, what's been undertaken so far? Well, in, a, in our uh, um, publication uh, that we're talking about, um, 
on this podcast, uh, we, pro we propose taking a sort of more systematic approach um, to achieving uh, global uh, biodiversity conservation goals by attempting to account for sort of all human biodiversity impacts and conservation efforts within a, a sort of single unified global framework that can sort of uh, lay the foundation or a more clear pathway um, in, in terms of guiding um, uh, conservation actions to achieve these um, very sort of high level um, global goals at the international scale. And um, it's a sort of framework uh, that expands on an existing concept known as the mitigation hierarchy. Um, and at its heart, it sort of offers a balanced and systematic way to account for and mitigate harmful impacts to biodiversity while still attempting to allow development activities um, to occur. I guess what we need to think about is on the conservation side, you've got the SDGs and the kind of large scale targets that all the governments have signed up to. And then at the local scale, you've got protected areas, you've got all sorts of bits of management like uh, sustainable use for fisheries or agroforestry and all these kinds of things. And at the moment, they don't connect very well. Mm. You know, so you can't see what's happening on the ground and how that's linking up very clearly to those kind of big aspirations that we have as a species. And so we need to find ways that make um, the kind of, we're not going to be able to have some kind of dictatorial systematic thing that tells the world how to conserve. We need to keep that local diversity, but there needs to be ways in which we can see how the whole is, is the sum of the parts. So, for example, when you're thinking about uh, protected areas, uh, the question comes, you know, how many protected areas do we need in order to be able to conserve the biodiversity that we want? Where should they be? You know, and there's been some work done about that. But, you know, how can you then take that down to the local level um, in a more organised way that allows credit, if you like, to be given for local level conservation? And so the idea being that by applying these, you know, mitigation hierarchies, um, you have a tool through which to kind of view the likely outcomes and see how they will be compared across different areas and improve the application of these sort of broader goals. Yeah, exactly. And so you could have goals that were more specific at a local level. So you can have species-specific goals. You know, we don't want any species to go extinct. Or you can have local, local-ish level goals so that the, nations, the nation can say what biodiversity is important to them and work to conserve that but then feed it back up into the global level. So kind of, you know, if you could tell me a little bit about, you know, what are the explicit goals of, you know, a mitigation hierarchy when it's applied in this sense? So the hierarchy um, has at its heart sort of got four broad action steps of avoidance, minimization, remediation, and then offsetting. And a goal that would be typically sought, uh, especially in the, the terrestrial realm where it's quite often applied, um, would be to achieve a sort of net neutral impact to biodiversity following a given activity. And this might commonly uh, be referred to as no net loss. Um, you could equally uh, seek uh, a net gain or a sort of overall positive impact to biodiversity following a given activity. Um, and just as likewise, it can be thought of as a sort of spectrum of moving through um, yeah, uh, both positive and negative impacts surrounding your activity. So uh, a net loss could also be um, hypothetically um, sought um, um, or achieved um, through this framework. So I guess the point is that you're trying to balance both the gain, the, the positive things that humans do to improve biodiversity with the negative things that they do that 
inadvertently might damage biodiversity. Yes, so it sort of can be thought of as like a, uh, a balanced spreadsheet. Um, you're looking at both the uh, uh, negative impacts um, caused by undertaking some sort of development activity and then the, the positive actions that might be undertaken in order to um, restore and, and negate those impacts. Another thing it's worth saying is that the mitigation hierarchy and particularly biodiversity offsetting have been very controversial. Um, so we felt quite bold in suggesting that something that's been controversial at the, con at the project level is something that should be used for the whole of biodiversity um, in case people thought that this was a terrible idea given that it was not necessarily proven to, to be working well for mining and uh, infrastructure development at the moment. But I think the thing that we think is that it's so much more understood now than it was uh, five or even five years ago. Um, and we now understand where the kind of practical constraints are and the theoretical constraints that have caused it not to work so far so well for the industry. And things are much, much improved now. And I think the main thing that has been found to be an issue is about monitoring and compliance. So often people have these wonderful plans for how they're going to uh, make sure that they don't damage biodiversity on as a net um, thing, but then uh, they're not held to account. They don't monitor their impacts over time. And then, of course, nothing happens. So uh, the only way that this would work is if people properly monitor it and hold people to account when they, when they say that they're going to reach a no net loss or net gain target, and then they don't. Yes. And also the sort of trans to follow on from that, the sort of uh, transparent nature of, of the process um, does require, um, you know, sort of explicit consideration of um, many actions or many facts that might previously have been uh, not considered or um, ignored. Um, so, for example, the idea that remediation uh, might not be able to uh, restore biodiversity back to um, a complete uh, intact state from prior to any um, impact. Okay, and you know, just so that you know, our listeners are on the same page that we all are. Let's talk about those four steps in a little bit more detail. And if you don't mind, uh, we could use an example. Uh, I note the the oil plantation example from the article. We could certainly use that, but if you have any others in mind, that would be great just to kind of give us a chance to chat a little bit about what things fall under each of those uh, mitigation steps. So just to kind of flesh that out, I guess, with the avoidance in the case of the oil palm, you would try to do a kind of biodiversity inventory of the area that was even potentially likely to be um, placed where the outcome could be placed. And you could say, oh, well, this area is really high, high biodiversity. It's got orangutans in it. This area is, is already kind of semi-degraded. And you would choose to do it in a semi-degraded area. So that's your avoidance step. And then once you're in the semi-degraded area, you would nonetheless, while you were planting the oil palm, you would perhaps leave some riparian uh, strips. So along the streams, you would make sure that you didn't cut down the forest so that you'd have you know, maybe five metres from the from the streams. So that would be your minimisation step. And then your remediation step would be, you know, after the plantation is exhausted, I'm going to commit to uh, reforesting that area. So I'm going to put some time and effort into trying to make sure that it goes back to rainforest in the end. And then your offset would be to say, even when I've done all of these things, 
there's still going to be some damage to biodiversity because I will have put oil palm on an area where there was biodiversity, however much I try. And there would have been this time lag before I remediate. And even then, it might still be secondary forest forever. And so there will be some biodiversity lost. And I'm going to make that good so that overall biodiversity isn't uh, damaged by, for example, restoring another area where uh, there was once forest, but it's just been left fallow. So I can put some work into that so that that becomes more biodiversity rich. That's, that's the kind of thing you do at the project level. And you could do that under many project levels, but also it's important to be able to scale it up so that even if you do it at the project level, you could still see an overall loss of biodiversity at the whole world level. And what we're trying to say is let's not do it at the project level so much. Let's just also think about um, biodiversity as a whole which becomes problematic because then you have to really understand what you mean by biodiversity as a whole. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. You know, in this type of sense, what does biodiversity as a whole really mean? You know, are, are we just aiming for a, the largest possible number of net species or are we trying to preserve, uh, you know, some charismatic species over others, et cetera? You know, how does that one work? Well, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. It's one that's probably grappled with, um, you know, widely by, by many conservationists because people can – it can be quite subjective. Um, people might hold um, species diversity um, much higher than ecosystem function, for example. Um, others might hold uh, the genetic diversity um, within an ecosystem much higher than both of those. Um, so I think an important thing that sort of becomes quite explicit through a framework such as the mitigation hierarchy is you do really need to explicit, uh, explicitly state which of these you are trying to uh, um, look at and restore to some sort of um, predetermined um, goal against measured against a predetermined biodiversity baseline. And um, it's, it also sort of um, brings into sharp relief the idea that, you know, if you do impact biodiversity, um, attempting to restore it um, back to um, some form of state definitely could be achieved in, in one aspect, like you might be able to restore um, the number of um, species, um, for example. But truly bring it back to completely uh, any pre-impact level, um, this is arguably impossible. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, and that kind of leads you towards pushing towards avoidance as much as possible. Exactly. But the interesting thing about this is that this whole mitigation hierarchy, and particularly biodiversity offsetting, has been terribly controversial in the place where it's been used at the moment, which is mostly kind of mining and uh, habitat destruction for various kinds of development, like roads and things like that. But for me, one of the reasons why it's been so controversial is that we ask people difficult questions because, because this framework is so transparent, you can't get away from defining what biodiversity you mean. And, you can't, and so often when people think about biodiversity, they think about um, charismatic mammals or they think about birds or they think about flora, you know, plant, uh, world plants that they actually like. And they don't think about the fact that biodiversity in the conventional biological diversity's definition is all living organisms at whatever scale of organisation. Mm -hmm. um, and so whenever you're trying to define biodiversity as a metric, you have to actually explicitly say what that metric is. And, and being transparent means you can't just really get away with saying it's birds. Right. That, that, that makes perfect sense. And it sounds like the goal setting is probably, you know, one of the, the most important parts. And then thereafter, you've got this lens through which to view your actions uh, to see whether you will achieve them. That plus the fact that we front load precautionality because I don't even know if that's a word, but because avoidance is the first thing you try to do uh, before you start. Yes, yeah, so I guess at, at the heart of it, it does have 
uh, a precautionary approach. Um, as AJ said, um, trying to implement avoidance. Um, the essential part of that is to try and make explicit how that, that avoidance has been considered um, when the development activity is going to occur. Um, so, for example, this could be alternate site selection, um, uh, as EJ mentioned earlier. The other thing to say is that um, we can't halt development. You know, if you want to have realistic conservation, you have to have conservation in the context of human progress. But we have to find ways in which we can make it more compatible with biodiversity conservation. So we have to find ways in which humans can coexist more effectively with their environment. And this is one way to help you again, really clarify how you're going to do that. Okay. So now the one thing I always wonder about with various approaches to conservation is, you know, how do you implement them? And um, we've talked about the mitigation hierarchies as being something that is applicable across a number of scales from the project level to the international and global scale. Um, how do you get people to use it? Is this something that you would want to enshrine in, you know, the next set of 2050 targets, or um, is this something that you encourage the adoption of at the national level or something like that? Uh, yes, I think well, op op like the, the operationalization of uh, such a framework um, is a very good question. And um, in terms of operationalizing it, it can be quite good to think about this in this structure in a similar way um, to the management of, of climate change um, at the international level. Um, uh, where they have a clearly specified um, a, a goal in terms of limiting global warming by two degrees Celsius, um, and then uh, the sort of have a, a common metric used um, in terms of carbon and how it's um, structured in terms of filtering down um, to nation states could also be a way that you could structure a similar framework um, with the mitigation hierarchy and biodiversity. Yeah, so I think I think realistically speaking. What you'd have to do with this is to is to roll it out slowly. So there's no reason why you couldn't have a single country saying, yeah, we're going to go with this yes. and we're going to try to see how it works at our country level. At the same time as once you set a much clearer goal for biodiversity conservation at the international level, you could start to do some accounting around it. So, for example, they already have um, quite good databases of protected area coverage. So one could start to think about what is the... what what is the potential for avoidance that we have left in the world? Because at the moment we, we're already at a situation where there isn't so much avoidance. So I think it would be good to do something that said, okay, this is the amount of avoidance that we could possibly do given the state of the world as it stands. These are the areas where we have already some kind of form of sustainable use or conservation management. So you could quantify that at the global level. Here's the areas where one could restore and the kind of biodiversity gains that one could have. So you can do all those bits of accounting at the global level, while at the same time, individual countries adopt the mitigation hierarchy approach for their own biodiversity within their uh, national biodiversity strategic action plans. So that's, that's I think, the way it would go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this seems incredibly valuable in the sense that it's scalable, um, which gives you the freedom to not necessarily uh, roll it out as as you described in some sort of dictatorial manner in which you you know uh, attempt to ask every single country and every single jurisdiction and every single um, project to adhere to it necessarily at the same time. It can be uh, rolled out in sort of a, a incremental fashion instead. Yes, and I think the other thing we were thinking about, which is nice about the climate approach, is the principle of um, subsidiarity and then uh, equity. So that you know, you there are some countries where there might 
have to be because of you know their population projections which they can do nothing about there's going to have to be more destruction of the environment and potentially they can't possibly reach no net loss of biodiversity in the next 20 30 years but there are other countries like much of europe actually where there is quite a lot of abandoned land where there's a lot of potential for conservation benefit um so that can be balanced although a big caveat to that is that biodiversity is inherently local. So what we don't really strongly don't advocate, advocate is global trading of biodiversity. Biodiversity is not one thing that can be traded at the global levels. You can't, you can't like you. So with carbon, uh, you know, the UK could say, I'm going to um, use a lot of carbon, but I'm going to buy up a load of forests in Amazonia in order to offset my carbon. That doesn't work for biodiversity. Biodiversity has to be done at a more local level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thank you. And I guess I'd like to close by asking, you know, what's next for this research? You know, what should we be on the lookout for in terms of global mitigation hierarchies? What can we expect to see? So the, the paper was uh, largely designed to sort of incite um, a lot of uh, debate um, and delve into um, a lot of the, the topics and points that we've raised with you today. Um, some of my PhD work that I'm currently working on um, looks at applying a, uh, a mitigation hierarchy framework in the context of fisheries bycatch. Um, EJ and I have, uh, along with some other colleagues, have written a paper that looks um, uh, at how you could potentially operationalise um, the achievement of uh, a bycatch reduction goal, so the sort of incidental impact to fisheries uh, that can occur from fishing, um, and how you can potentially achieve that working your way through um, a mitigation hierarchy. Um, in terms of the global level of where this might go from here. Um, yeah, well, I guess um, what I was saying before about having a proper accounting of what the potential op- opportunity is for each of these steps in the mitigation hierarchy is the first step. And that's something that would be really good to continue with and hopefully we'll be able to do that. And our colleague James Watson, who was author, also an author of the paper, has been making a lot of strides on this, particularly on the protected area side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in all, once you've got that inventory, then you can start to think about it at the global level. And I guess the other thing is that uh, this forms part of a general kind of research push in my group about trying to think forwards and trying to think about how, what kind of world do we want? Um, because until we answer that question as conservationists, it's really hard to convince anybody else to come behind us. And I think conservationists at the moment don't have a clear vision for that. So we're hoping that this paper will help with the debate, which we're going to continue to um, push about what do conservationists actually want. And how are we going to get there? Yes. And we'll look forward to hearing more in the coming months and years. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.